And now here's another timely yet timeless word from the Word of God from one of our services at First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. Psalm 69. We're just going to be reading verses 30 through 32. So, Psalm 69, beginning in verse 30. If you would, just stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word, if you can. So this is Psalm 69, beginning in verse 30. and says, I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hoofs. When the humble see it, they will be glad. You who seek God, let your hearts revive. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just pray for uh, the presence of your Holy Spirit in the here and now, Father, to minister the truth to us. Uh, your word is truth. Uh, you, uh, Jesus, you prayed in your high priestly prayer to the Father to sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So as we examine it uh, this morning, as we uh, expose it, we pray that you would uh, lay bare our hearts to understand how we can magnify you. This is what you've called us to do. Uh, and it's so pertinent considering this time of year. So just speak that truth to our hearts to bring about a difference so that in the end we'll be, look more like your son Jesus. And it's in his precious name we pray. Amen. All right, you may be seated. David says, I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. It's a mark of all the true children of God, that they long to magnify the God of their salvation. Psalm 40, 16 says, May all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. Psalm 34, 3 says, O magnify magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Psalm 48, 1, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. Well, this was the heart cry of every Old Testament saint. And now it's the longing of every true Christian. Paul says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That is, do everything so that God might be magnified. If you've met the living Son of God, Jesus Christ, and you have joined yourself to him in faith, then your heart should say with Paul, It is my eager expectation and hope that I shall not at all be ashamed, but with full courage, now as always, Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. You see it? Whether it's in your life or it's in your death, Paul says, I want to magnify God. So I say that it's the mark of all God's true children that they long to magnify the God of their salvation and his son, Jesus Christ. David said, I will magnify God with thanksgiving. Now the word magnify, it can be used in two different senses. It can mean make something appear greater than it is as with a microscope or a magnifying glass. Show me the next slide. Yeah, on on the left there you've got a... um, a microscope. For 20 years before the Lord called me into full-time ministry, I was a lab tech. 
And in hematology and urinalysis, you use one of these just about all day long, depending on what particular station you're in. So with blood, you make what's called a blood smear. You have that little slide. No, go back. Go back. You got the one on the left there is kind of a, you know, uh, orangish, reddish. That's, uh, that's an unstained smear. And the one on the right is a stained smear. So what you do, you take that glass and you throw it on the microscope, put a little immersion oil on it, put it on 100, focus in, and then you get something like this. Now, the next one. There you go. That's a pretty normal field that you would be looking at. And, of course, you have little twir twirly things that you spin to make it move around so you can look all over the place. You have to count the, the, the bluish and, and not the red ones. Can anybody guess what the little red ones are? Yeah, they're red blood cells or RBCs, right? Red blood corpuscles. That's what they are. And uh, so you have to look at them and see if they're shaped right and, and what have you. Uh, now, the one on the far right, the solid blue one, that's what's known as a lymphocyte or a lymph. When you have a viral infection, and these have a particular ratio. Typically, it's about 75% of the middle one and about 20% 20, 20 of the, the lymph on the right. And then you might have 3 to 5% of the one on the left. Well... When you get a viral infection, your lymph count will go up. So when they do a CBC and they get a purple top tube from you and they come back and say, yeah, you got a viral infection, that's how they know. Your lymphocytes are really, I mean, yeah, your lymphocytes are really high. The next one too, it's called a segmented neutrophil or a seg is what we call it in the business. And, and that is, those go up when you have a bacterial infection. So you get some type of cut that gets infected, what have you, and it's bacteria. Your segs are going get, to get really high. And you, and you see how that one's kind of bent? And, and it, we call it segmented because it looks like little globules. Well, yeah, I mean, he's got a pointer on it. Very good. Uh, when you get a, a good infection, uh, a bacterial infection, you'll see bands. It'll just be one smooth thing. It's an immature cell because your body is producing so much of those things, of those segmented neutrophils. Or neutrophils. The one on the left is what we call a monocyte. Ah. What do you think happens when you get mono? Your monocytes go through the roof because they're fighting that particular infection. Okay, so anyway, you understand that none of this is visible by our naked eye. We stick our finger, what do we see? A blob of red. Hopefully it's red. 12 foot and below underwater, you know what color your blood turns? Green. I've seen it. We were at 15 feet. Paul cut his finger. He squeezed it and green comes out. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. that's weird. Okay, so that's what, that's what a microscope does. It makes really little things. And we can get a lot smaller than this, right? We can get, we can get micron uh, down to the microns and look at things. It's ridiculous, the, 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 the magnification power to take things that are really small and make them visible to us. So that's, that's, one, of the, that's one type of magnification. To magnify can also mean to make something that, that may seem small or insignificant appear to be as great as it really is, okay? This is what our great telescopes, they help us to begin to see the magnificent universe which once, a t once upon a time just spilled over from the brim of God's glory. 
Twinkle, twinkle, yeah, twinkle, twinkle, little star, how I wonder what you are. Now, you can't see this very well in here. We need it dark, but that's okay. That's what our normal night looks like, right? Especially around here. It's not so much in Tallahassee. You can't see the starry sky like you can down here. Now, you get out into a desert or out into the mountains where there's zero light, Mangochi at night was like this, all right? You could see like, you know what that thing is just to the right of that tree? That's what we call the Milky Way galaxy. That's our galaxy, right? Billions and billions of stars in a spiral formation. It's just incredible what we can see. Now, that's with the naked eye. That's a, that's a, that's a uh, what do you call it, a time exposure to show it that well. But I promise you, in Mangochi, it is dark at night. And we, we were just walking to the Chan's house. You could look up and you could see the cloud of the Milky Way overhead. It's just phenomenal. All right, so the next one, I believe, yeah, that's old Hubble. That's our Hubble telescope. I don't know where it's at now, but it takes incredible pictures. What's next? Who's that? Somebody tell me. That's Saturn with its icy rings, right? We wouldn't have that type of picture, you know, except for this telescope. What's next? Well, there you've got Jupiter. If you look just to the left of it, you see a little bitty, that's its moon, Europa. All right? So we can see that because of the telescope. Look at the next one. Anybody got a guess? That's not the Milky Way. That's Andromeda. Very good. I've had a Snickers, I'd throw it to you. That's Andromeda. Andromeda, this is, an, this is our closest galaxy to us. It is 6,500 light years away. And it's bigger than us, but it looks there. We can actually see it. You, can't, you can actually see it in the sky. There's only three galaxies besides our own that you can actually see in the night sky. And this is one of them. But this is from the Hubble looking at it. And it's like, oh my goodness. So it takes things that might appear just as little bitty nothings. And it blows them up to show us, oh, they are so much more than little bitty twinkle, twinkle little stars. It's incredible what a telescope can do. Well, so you got two types of magnification. You have microscope magnifying and telescope magnifying. The microscope makes little bitty things look big so you can actually see them. Whereas the telescopes make things that may not appear big, but it, it shows you, yes, it begins to demonstrate to you that they really are big. Okay, we get a little more truth in looking through a telescope that way. When David says, I will magnify God with thanksgiving, do you think he's talking about a microscope or a telescope? Is he looking, is he trying to make a small God bigger so that you can see him? This is the God we worship. Let me put him under a microscope so you can see him good. Is that what he's doing? No. It's scopic. He's trying to give us, he wants us to magnify God so that people begin to see God as big as he really is. One of the reasons that God created this vast universe that we live in, and as far as we know, we are the only life forms in this universe. So why did he create everything else? One reason is to show us just how big he is. That with his word, he could spin out this universe made of trillions and trillions of stars covering some 14 billion light years in size. Our minds cannot fathom that. So Paul says we need to magnify them, God, magnify this God, so that he begins to look as big as he really is. So we're not called to be microscopes. 
but telescopes. Christians are not called to be con men who magnify their product out of proportion to reality when they know that the competitor's progress is far, or, or, or product is far superior. Now, there's nothing and nobody superior to God. Can I get an amen? So the calling of those who love God is to make his greatness begin to look as great as it really is. The whole duty of the Christian can be summed up, summed up in this. Feel, think, and act in a way that will make God look as great as he really is. Be a telescope for the world of the infinite starry wealth of the glory of God. Now, the fact that God is great in every way that greatness is to be valued, it should be obvious to everyone. The Apostle Paul says, ever since the creation of the world, his invisible nature, namely, his eternal power and his deity have been clearly seen in the things that have been made. He's talking about creation here. Creation says that there is a God and that he has all power. And then he continues, so men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or give thanks. This is that verse that I told you last week is a condemnation against the entire world that is not in Christ. They know there's a God, but they do not glorify him as God, neither do they give him thanks. Thanks is a big deal as we're going to see in a minute. It should be obvious, but it's not. And that's due to the sinful insensitivity and the forgetfulness of our hearts. Many of God's greatest attributes and most awesome and loving deeds, they pass in one ear and out the other without even eliciting a, a, a ripple of emotion from us. Seeing, as Isaiah says, we do not see. Hearing, we do not hear. When our hearts are in such a condition, we need to beg God, just like Paul did, to open the eyes of our heart that we might know, that is to really know and feel the hope to which he has called us and what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power in us who believe. But even when God graciously removes the scales from our eyes so that we can be moved by his greatness, we're still prone to straightway forget what we have seen. Israelites were bad about that, weren't they? They're complaining. God would meet that complaint. Three days later, they're complaining against some, about something else. They get all the way to the Red Sea, and they're like, oh, just take us back home. Take us back to Egypt. At least we had leeks and onions we could eat there. Unbelievable. Haven't you all had this experience, as I have, where you feel the goodness and the faithfulness of God so intensely that you want to leap in the air, you want to shout, you want to hug your children? That's just how real God is to you in that moment, whatever it is. You say, oh God, how could I ever doubt you after this? How could I ever again despair of your help? And then just a short time later, what? <laughs> you find yourself doing just that. You're discouraged. You're feeling no confidence in the goodness and the greatness of God. Why? 
It's because we're so prone to forget the evidence of God's goodness, which we ourselves have experienced, not to mention the evidence that we find in Scripture. This is why David preaches to himself, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. Do you see it? Soul, do not forget what God has done for you. Instead, soul, do what Asaph says in Psalm 77, verses 11 through 13. He says, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? So we're called to be telescopes. People who make the greatness of God seem as great as it really is. This is what it means for a Christian to magnify God. Now, you cannot magnify what you haven't seen or what you have forgot. So our first task is to see and to remember the greatness and the goodness of God. So we pray to God, open the eyes of my heart so that we can see. And we preach to our souls, souls, forget not all his benefits. But, so, but suppose that we have seen and we do remember the greatness and goodness of God's power, his wisdom, his mercy, what sort of response magnifies him the best? What must a human telescope, that's us, Christians, what must we do in order to cause God to appear as great as he really is? Our text in Psalm 69, verse 30, it answers, I will magnify God with thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. When we give thanks to him from our hearts, God is magnified. Gratitude glorifies God. How is it? Why so? It, the answer is pretty simple. Givers are more glorious than receivers. Benefactors are more glorious than beneficiaries. You remember Paul told us um, it's better to give than to receive. When we thank God, we acknowledge and we display that he is the giver, he is the benefactor. When we do that, we pay him a high compliment. When my sons used to get angry with each other, if you've got children, you know what this is about. Um, they didn't say thank you very easily. You'd have to say, Caleb, tell, tell Jay thank you. Oh, thank you. Jay, tell Caleb you're welcome. Oh, you're welcome. We all do this, right? We're all familiar with that scenario. Why? It's because saying thank you is actually a compliment. It magnifies the person you are thanking. But when you're angry at somebody, <laughs> don't you kind of hate to pay them a compliment? Um, you want to belittle them, not magnify them. You hate to think of them as your benefactor. So when gratitude springs up in the human heart toward God, he is magnified as the wealthy source of our blessing. He is acknowledged as the giver and benefactor and therefore as glorious. But when gratitude does not spring up in the hearts of God's 
people at his greatness and goodness to us, it probably means that we don't want to pay him a compliment. We don't want to, to magnify him as our benefactor. And there's a very good reason that human beings by nature do not want to magnify God with thanksgiving or glorify him as their benefactor. And the reason is it detracts from their own glory. And I hope you understand this. All people by nature love their own glory more than they love the glory of God. Psalm 35, 27, David says, Let those who desire my vindication shout for joy and be glad and say forevermore, The Lord be magnified. Now, I contrast that with a second group in verse 27, or excuse me, uh, 26. Let them be clothed with shame and dishonor who magnify themselves against me. I want you to see this. There are only two groups of people in the world whose differences from each other are of any real eternal significance. Those who love to magnify God and those who love to magnify themselves. And folks, there's no middle ground. At the root of all ingratitude is the love of one's own greatness. You see, genuine gratitude admits that we are beneficiaries of an unearned bequest. We are cripples leaning on the cross-shaped cross of Jesus Christ, or the cross-shaped crutch of Jesus Christ. We are paralytics living minute by minute in the grip of God's grace. We are children asleep in heaven's stroller. Now, the natural man, he, th he hates to think of himself in these images as unworthy beneficiary, as a cripple, as a paralytic, as a child. They rob him of all of his glory and they give it to God. Therefore, as long as a man loves his own glory, as long as he prizes his self-sufficiency and hates to think of himself as sin-sick and helpless, he'll never feel any genuine gratitude to the true God and so he will never magnify God but only himself. There's an interesting connection between our, our text here in Psalm 69 and Psalm 50 and 51, and it bears this out. The text, uh, verse 32 says, I will magnify God with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and, ho horns and hooves. Why is that? Why does the offering of some expensive animal please God less than an offering of genuine thanks? Well, Psalm 59 through 14, it suggests an answer. I will accept no bull from your house, nor he goat from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the air. All that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and all that is in it is mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls and, or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High. Did you catch that? One of the reasons that God was not pleased with the offering of an ox or a bull was that the giver of that offering, he often thought that his gift was enriching God in some way, that he was supplying some deficiency in God. 
But what seems like an act of love among men meeting someone's needs, that is actually an insult to God. Why? It's because every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills. You can't give me a bull or an ox. They're already mine, God says. Now here is man's self-exaltation in play once again. Even in the practice of religion, he finds a way to preserve his status as giver rather than receiver. Rather than or, or, or portraying himself as a giver, as a, a self-sufficient benefactor. So in the very act of worship, he belittles God by refusing to assume the part of a receiver, an undeserving and helpless beneficiary of mercy. Now, as an antidote to this arrogance in worship, God prescribes the exact opposite. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanks. Acknowledge God as the giver and accept the lowly status of receiver. That's what magnifies God. That's why Psalm 50, 23 says, He who brings, brings thanksgiving as his sacrifice honors me. You want to honor God? Bring him a sacrifice of thanksgiving. So when David says in Psalm 51, 17, the sacrifice that is acceptable to God is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. He's simply describing the only sort of heart from which the sacrifice of genuine thanksgiving can flow. Until the stiffness of a man's arrogant neck is broken and the hardness of his self-sufficient heart is softened, he will never be able to offer genuine thanks to the true God. And therefore, he will not magnify God. He will only magnify himself. Now, the last verse in our text, verse 32 says, Let the oppressed see it and be glad. You who seek God, let your hearts revive. The words that we've spoken so far, they've been bad news for those who are intent on maintaining their pride for those who love their own glory, for those committed to their own self-sufficiency. Yet those words are not bad news to the oppressed. To those who have come to the end of the rope. I love the picture of a little cat hanging on. It says, hang in there, baby, and they're hanging on to the end of the rope, right? Nothing else to do. To those who have just really fallen exhausted from pulling at your own bootstraps to get yourself up, our text is actually good news. What are God's demands? What does an all-sufficient God who own you talking about, you talking about somebody it's hard to give a gift to? You ever met somebody like that? Maybe it's an in-law or a parent or whatever, and you go, they got everything, they don't need anything. Try giving something to God that he needs. Well, here's what he wants. His demand is great for us, but it's not that we be great. In fact, it's the opposite. We are to cease to be great in our own eyes and become small so that he might appear big. We give him the glory. David says, A sacrifice acceptable to God is a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Jesus says, It is not the well who need a physician, but the sick. Uh, but the sick. Jesus has nothing to do for those who insist that they are well. He demands something great, 
And that is that we admit that we are not great. And I'm telling you what, the older I get, the easier that is. I see some nodding heads. You know exactly what I'm talking about. This is bad news for the arrogant, but it's words of honey to the oppressed who have given up their charade of self-sufficiency and they're actually seeking God. For by such, God will be found and he will pour into their empty hearts such a love as they have never known. And there will arise freely and joyfully within them a sense of gratitude that is so genuine, so visible that God will be greatly magnified as the merciful giver of everything that we have and everything that we are. 1 Peter 5, 5 and 6 says, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that in due time he may exalt you. Psalm 34, 3. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Psalm 69, 30. I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. Psalm 103, verses 1 and 2. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not any of his benefits. Are you forgetful today? Today's a good day. Every day is a good day to remember. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for just the encouragement we have in your word and to understand how we can offer a sacrifice that is acceptable to you. It's with a broken spirit and a contrite heart that we recognize, Father, we are not great, but you are. And we simply say, thank you. We understand that everything we are and everything we have comes from your hand. So we give you praise. We give you glory. We ask that in our magnifying of you that people would be drawn to you. This is one way that we can lift high Jesus who said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. So God, help us to do that in our everyday lives to give thanks to you. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I went a little longer than I thought. I was gonna go around and say, now on this side of the message, let's do it again. What do you have to give thanks for? Multiple people hit it before. Um, What do we have to be thankful for? Jesus. Jesus. That God, in His infinite wisdom, decided not to destroy us. What did He do with the the, the angels who sinned? He's committed them to, to eternal punishment. No second chance. We've all sinned. Paul tells us that. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. But God has another plan for us, and that's through His Son, Jesus. The only way that we can be restored to God rightfully is through His Son. He sent His Son, Jesus, to die on the cross. These are the things that eternally we have to be grateful for, okay, and what Jesus did on the cross. If you don't know Christ in that way, I encourage you this morning to come to Him. Paul says today is the day of salvation. You come. We'll, we'll look at Scripture and show you what it means to just, uh, what Jesus claimed, who He was. We believe that. We trust Him with our eternal life, not ourselves. We trust Him, and He'll save you. If you're a believer, I hope that you will take this just as a challenge to have grateful hearts and attitudes. It's kind of, 
I don't know, it just makes a, such a difference in your life when you look at life in terms of how can I give God praise in this? How can I thank God for this? People will notice. And if you're doing it genuinely, they will want to know what's going on with you. <laughs> why, why are you being this way in the midst of this? Well, it's because I, I serve a, a good and gracious God. And I, rem I have not forgotten all of His benefits. That is so important. If you get caught in, in where you're doubting God and you're just, you know, you're in that, that, that doldrums spiritually and what have you, I love that verse. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits. Remember, soul, what God has done for you. I hope you use that in your life this week to give God thanks because He is deserving. Thank you for joining us for this podcast from First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. You can find more information and follow us on Facebook or visit our website, crawfordvillefbc.com.